I'm going to ask you a question. It's not a trick question, I promise. Just a regular old question. And I want you to think of the answer in your head. Okay, ready? What color is ketchup? If you said red, congratulations. You, you, you have eyes and you've seen ketchup before. But really, you're only partially right. There was a time where Heinz released a number of different colors of ketchup, among them purple. And if you're thinking, wait a second, no, they didn't, I don't blame you. Those crazy colored ketchups didn't sell very well, and so chances are you either missed it or you tried to block it out of your memory. Because gross. But gross is not what Heinz thought the ketchup would be, clearly, otherwise they wouldn't have made it. While you're thinking it's a no-brainer that Heinz failed, it's purple ketchup, who would want that? Somebody at Heinz, or multiple somebodies, was thinking, this is a great idea. This will help us stand out. We should create purple ketchup. But I mean, gross, right? And this brings me to a major question I've been thinking about lately, and the whole point of this episode. Way too often, we love the advice in business to be different. Why is that? It's funky, it's brave, it is different. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. I'm Jay Akunzo. Okay, let's back it up for a moment. Heinz probably had a lot of reasons for making multicolored ketchup, but at the crux of that decision is this motivator I see all the time in makers and marketers of all shapes and sizes. That motivator is the impulse, the drive, nay, the need to be different. Some attempts at doing something different seem to be great. I'll give you that. When I was a kid, I thought Lucky Charms was the greatest cereal ever because it was so different from everything else. I love basketball and I thought the Harlem Globetrotters were great. As an adult, uh, when I listen to music, I appreciate what Maggie Rogers does or what a band I love named Mute Math tries. Or I love the fact that brands like Wistia and Envision and yes, in the macro level, brands like Red Bull exist. I love when somebody does something that stands out that is different. It can work. It can be great. Because different makes people notice. Different gets attention. It makes you stand out. Hell, I wanted to make Unthinkable because I wanted to make a show that sounded different than every other droning business podcast out there. In plenty of cases, I think being different is a good thing. But because something is different, that doesn't mean it's automatically good, right? I mean, I could deliver an entire keynote speech next week with my back turned to a thousand people. I'm certainly different, but I'm also terrible. So different can mean multiple things. It could mean good and interesting. It can also mean an unwelcome stunt. Different can also mean rash and risky or unnerving and, and, and distasteful. It can be rebellious without purpose or like purple ketchup, just plain gross. I think about when a brand's social media team or maybe their agency insists on tweeting words like bay and mood and oh my gosh, do you remember on fleek? Do you remember when brands actually tweeted on fleek seriously? Okay, sometimes maybe in some instances that works, but most of the times it just makes you cringe. Yeah, you're certainly different with your tone of voice, brand manager, but you're awful. You're missing the mark and you feel forced, like you're trying to be different for the letter of the law and the spirit is missing. So if we're going to create anything different and we're going to create consistently great work at the same time, we have to understand that spirit, not just the letter. We have to put some nuance back into this understanding of what it takes to be different and successful. But before we do, 
we first need to explore why we actually want to be different in the first place. And more importantly, how this idea and this advice came to be so ubiquitous around the business world. First, why do we want to be different? Well, obviously, the impulse to be different comes from a very understandable desire to stand out. If you're doing the same thing as everybody else, how will anybody ever pay attention? That makes sense, right? When it comes to our personalities, our worldviews, our tastes, and yes, our work, the quirky little differences are what makes us interesting to other people. Again, this all feels obvious, but why is this the case? Well, it turns out there's actual science behind why we notice when things are different. Neuroscientists call this selective attention, and it has two different parts. Number one, picking out what's important from a constant flow of information, and number two, protecting those important things in our minds so we can use them and benefit from them instead of it getting lost among all the other less important stuff. Now, part of this idea of selective attention was born out of fear. We have to, or at least we think we have to, start noticing highs and lows, good and bad, the extremes, in order to process stimuli and react accordingly. Our caveman ancestors, for example, would notice when all the little birds got quiet. Maybe there was a predator. They would notice when a berry killed one of their friends and one of their family members. Okay, you shouldn't eat those berries. They would notice when a woolly mammoth was charging straight for their hut because it was different and scary than the normal day-to-day activities. Different and bad, if you will. But there is another side of this coin that's more positive. These are the things that are different and good. And these are things our brain can also hold on to. Some of those earlier examples I gave you of what I loved as a kid or what I love as a professional, those were different and good. Here's another example. Imagine you walk into a crowded office on your first day at work. You're nervous because it's your first job out of school or you just haven't been at this company before and you're excited, but yeah, you have those butterflies. In this office is a crowd of people. They're all milling about their days. Some are chatting with each other over the water cooler, over coffee. Others are at their desks talking on the phone or smacking away at their keyboards. There's this general din and mess of people. But then from across the office, one individual locks eyes on you. Suddenly, in that moment, your brain clears away all the other stimuli and is focused on the individual looking back at you. That moment is different, and perhaps different but good, or maybe you want to see if it could be different and good, and so you miraculously find your way to sit next to this individual at the next company meeting, and the next one, and the next one, and maybe then you work up the nerve to ask that person on a date, and even though it's your first job out of college, and you swore you'd never date a coworker because that can't end well, you're smitten with this person who made eye contact with you right away, and you swear you're going to marry this girl, and then you do, uh... This is all all purely hypothetical, of course. Love you, babe. (laughs) So, yeah, selective attention. It's a self-preservation thing, you see. Noticing things that are different is a function of filtering information, which we have to do in order to avoid being constantly overwhelmed and to avoid missing crucial context. Our cavemen brains are going, if we miss that context, we might die. Oh my goodness. Today, cognitive disorders like ADD or schizophrenia are examples of what can happen to a person when they're unable to parse that information. So, according to science, it's very helpful to be able to notice what's different in our lives for a multitude of reasons. So, with all that in mind, 
can we really blame Heinz or any marketer, any brand, any maker of anything for trying to grab our attention by pulling a stunt? Because hashtag science, right? Purple ketchup sitting among a sea of red in all that shelf space is certainly going to draw the eye. But is that good? Just because you grab attention doesn't make what you're offering any good. In other words, the reason something is different and good is because it's both those things, different and good. Just being different might be necessary, but it's not sufficient. I mean, honestly, did a brand manager at Heinz read Seth Godin's famous book, Purple Cow, and then take it a bit too seriously? I mean, what happened there? So often, people interpret the command to be different as exactly that. But our goal isn't to create stunts. Our goal isn't to just manufacture spikes in the numbers. Our goal is to deliver consistently great work over time. But instead of go forward in time, I just want to go back in time really briefly here. I want to take a trip back to 1980. Imagine that it's 1980 and I'm, well, I'm actually negative five years old, but for the purposes of this episode, let's say I'm there looking great in a John Hughes approved outfit. Mount St. Helens had its first eruption in over 100 years. The Rubik's Cube had just hit stores for the first time. And John DeLorean had just invented the craziest sports car the world had ever seen. The car is small and streamlined, and the doors open like wings, making a parked DeLorean with the doors wide open look like some kind of futuristic robotic hawk that just landed on its prey. The back of the car looks like it could blast the thing into space with this aerodynamic paneling. And if all those details don't add up to a car that's different enough for you, well... The company partnered with American Express around the holidays to create a limited run of about 100 DeLoreans with 24 karat gold plating. They sold at a price tag of $85,000 each, although only two were sold. And that becomes more of a theme than John DeLorean would have liked. Now to you and me, maybe the image of the DeLorean brings up a warm and fuzzy sort of nostalgia. But keep in mind that in 1980, no one had heard of Back to the Future yet because the films didn't exist, and the DeLorean was pretty baffling to customers. It certainly was different, but that didn't guarantee success. So what went wrong? Well, for starters, there were all these assembly issues in the company's Ireland-based factory. DeLoreans were made in the UK because the government there viewed this fancy futuristic car as a way to actually solve their unemployment crisis. However, giving manufacturing jobs to any workers that need them means that most of these workers had no experience putting cars together. This slowed down the actual production immensely, and on top of that, the cars weren't made very well when they did successfully make them. So too much money was spent on repair centers back in the US. It was such a different car that it required this bespoke approach to repairs. All this adds up to the price of a DeLorean becoming equivalent to a high-speed sports car. Just one problem. A high-speed sports car, it was not. Consumers that had the kind of money to spend on, say, a Lamborghini, were going to go buy a Lamborghini. They wanted faster, flashier, more customizable cars than the DeLorean. It certainly was different, but it was different and rigid, different and complicated, different and bad. To make matters weirder and a lot worse, John DeLorean decided to try and escape from his own financial woes by selling drugs. Well, I mean, kind of. He didn't really succeed in this endeavor. 
he had this old neighbor, James Timothy Hoffman, who said he could let him in on a slice of a big drug deal. The whole drug deal would be worth $24 million, and John, you would get $6 million. Well, it turns out James Timothy Hoffman was secretly working with the federal government. Hoffman was a former drug smuggler, and he was trying to lighten his sentence as an informant to the government. And so at Hoffman's suggestion, the FBI hooked up John DeLorean with 59 pounds of cocaine. Great Scott! Now, when John was on trial, his lawyers were able to prove that this was illegal, he was entrapped, it was no good, and they threw out the case. But if that is a win for John DeLorean, we've gone so far from that initial intent. I want to create a wildly different car that people love. By the time the case ended, DeLorean's company was bankrupt and his credibility was gone. Now, when I first heard that story, I was like, how the hell does this actually happen? Because the car's famous now. Why didn't they sell a ton of them? Uh, Yeah, maybe even to just a few people, but for a higher price tag. Why didn't the movies help with this? Well, unfortunately, those movies came out after the company went under. So rather than create something refreshingly different, something beloved by consumers, John DeLorean created a movie prop. The sleek stainless steel DeLorean. Beautifully crafted for long life. The DeLorean is one of the most awaited automobiles in automotive history. Drive the DeLorean. Live the dream today. Different doesn't guarantee good. So why is the advice to be different instead of better so ubiquitous around the business world? In the spring of 2015, marketing veteran and Hall of Fame public speaker Sally Hogshead wrote one of her most famous articles of all time. The title? Different is better than better. Oh my gosh, even just the title hits me where I live. I love that, right? I can't believe I'm doing this episode. Oh gosh, I love the idea. All right, let's push on here. Different is better than better. In the post, Sally emphasized the importance of finding what's different about your personality, your company, your team, your view of the world, and using that to stand out and build a moat around your business. Sally challenged the conventional thinking that we learned really in school that we should always try to be better, that we should try to get up the ladder and beat the competition, go faster and further based on competency. But being better, said Sally, is very temporary. Somebody bigger or richer or with more influence and power and followers or just plain hungrier than you can come up with the better better tomorrow or maybe in the next half hour. Different is better than better. However, something is missing. There's this nuance we need to put back into this idea of being different. Those who respond to this idea of being different with such enthusiasm, like you and I, we have to realize there's this implied unspoken belief that we carry with us that we have to evangelize first before we tell others just be different. The belief in doing the best work possible and never settling for average. If all you care about is doing work that's eh, good enough or spike those numbers in the near term and who cares about tomorrow, if you fall victim to shortcut culture and don't care about your audience, your colleagues, or your craft, well, you'll probably create some purple ketchup if all you hear is be different or different is better than better. So my challenge to you, instead of trying to be different, strive to be different and better. 
And because that's a mouthful, let's condense it even further. Try to be refreshing. When you're different, it doesn't guarantee that you're any good. Remember, purple ketchup, the DeLorean, me giving a talk to a thousand people with my back to them. All those things are indeed different. And they play to the science of selective attention, but in a negative way. If we want to do something positive in this world and with our work, if we want to be fondly remembered and go beyond grabbing attention to actually hold it, that's where we have to be different and better, i.e. refreshing. When your goal is to just be different, you start asking, different from whom? The competition, right? Great. Make purple ketchup because that's different. Make the DeLorean. That's different than the competition. But if your goal is to be refreshing, you're forced to wonder, refreshing to whom? Not different from whom, refreshing to whom? The audience, the customer, the client, the team, the people you serve. That challenge again, don't be different, be refreshing. So, uh, so how? My answer is really summed up with one word, honesty. You may have noticed a trend in most of the stories here in Unthinkable. It always starts out looking crazy or unconventional from the outside, and then you hear their stories, and it seems simple and logical and straightforward and smart. Yes, all these people we talk about are creative, but they're not doing so on a lark. They're not pulling stunts. Their creativity is rooted in honesty. They act like investigators, asking great questions and pursuing them within their own context, because their context contains all kinds of variables that the conventional wisdom or best practice has not considered. In other words, they're being honest about their specific and unique situation. Maybe that's why I can't stand shortcut culture. People who manufacture those stunts to seem different, or people who seek shortcuts and hacks, maybe they bug me so much because they're not being honest. When you at mention a group of people, not because you actually want to talk to them, but because you know the algorithm of LinkedIn then surfaces that content higher, you're not being honest. You're feigning engagement, feigning conversation. Honesty. This is an idea I really haven't considered much before this episode. For some reason, my my mind is going straight to music and how honesty creates refreshing songs. This is probably something to do with the fact that that I just hired a new co-writer on Unthinkable, Tally Gabriel, who helped me with this episode, is a musician, and she's constantly talking my ear off about music-related everything. But regardless, she brought up a very good point the other day that stuck with me. Oh, and by the way, you're going to meet Tally in an upcoming episode of the show, I promise. She's awesome, you'll love her. But anyway, Tally is a musician who, right now, as I record these words is heading up and down the East Coast on tour with her band. And she's told me multiple times, there's no such thing as a new love song. Huh. Think about it. Falling in love, being in love, falling out of love, being heartbroken, wanting someone who doesn't love you back. It's all been written before. And yet, people write new love songs every day. And plenty of them continue to resonate with an audience. Why? Other than the fact that we're sappy, emotional beings. I mean, have you heard my show before (laughs) but when a song really resonates with us it's for two reasons one we relate to the message or the musicality of it and two because we believe the singer we can hear the honesty in their voice their lyrics the emotion in their violin riffs that only could have come from an individual with something truthful to say tons and tons of versions of I Love You, Don't Leave Me exists in songs, but it's always a little bit different when a new artist creates their own version. Sure, thousands have sung about the idea, 
but thousands weren't this singer in this situation playing to this audience. The context always changes, and it's possible to use that context in authentic ways. Now, is that song better? Well, that might be subjective, but it's certainly good, and it's good because it comes from something real. There's not a chart or a graph that says, ah yes, the good quotient on this song was 9.3 out of 10, congratulations, we have a hit. That doesn't exist. As an artist, as a creator of anything really in our work, you can only attempt to master your craft and then put out something as honestly as you can. When singer-songwriter Maggie Rogers went viral playing a sample for Pharrell, he said literally these words. Wow, I have zero, zero, zero notes for that. And I'll tell you why, it's because you're doing your own thing. It's singular. It's like when the Wu-Tang Clan came out, like no one could really judge it. You either liked it or you didn't, but you couldn't compare it to anything else. And that is such a special quality and all of us possess that ability, but you have to be willing to, you have to be willing to, to seek. And you have to be willing to be like real frank in your music and frank in your choices. And sometimes like, you know, most time, most of the time people will say, okay, I'm going to make this kind of song. So it ends up sounding like something we've heard before or felt before, you know? And I feel like what you, you know, your whole story, I can hear it in the music. Look, I think the point isn't to be different. It's to be different and good. It's to be refreshing. And you and I might embrace that intrinsically or naturally. But way too often in the business world, people take things by the letter of the law and not the spirit. And so when someone says we have to be different, you get stunts cheats, trend hopping. You get the manufacturing of whatever it would take to appear different. So if we rethought this idea entirely, if the advice was to be refreshing, well, that isn't a system we can game. Because we're not zigging when others zag just because we want to be different from the competition. We'd have to genuinely, honestly, and consistently serve the audience. We'd have to do something that they actually think is refreshing is different and good. When something feels manufactured, I don't mean built, I mean fabricated. We're not showing people what makes us actually different, we're trying to tell them that we are different, and in doing so, we're telling them a lie. When I look at the examples like Purple Ketchup, or The DeLorean, or the latest growth hack on LinkedIn that helps game an algorithm, or the podcast that professes to have the secret told by the biggest guru they could interview, in all these cases and dozens and dozens more, it all feels like a lie. It feels like somebody is leaping to the end and trying to manufacture that result, regardless of whether the path there is honest. And it all comes, I think, from focusing too much on being different, on standing out purely because you're supposed to stand out. Instead, if you found a way to stand out honestly, if you found what makes you, your team, your situation genuinely different, genuinely worthy of standing out, you'd seem refreshing. All of us possess that ability, but you have to be willing to to seek. 
Big thanks to Tally Gabriel, not only for the inspiration to go down that music rabbit hole and learn a big lesson or two, but also for producing your first ever episode of Unthinkable. Thank you so much for your help writing and, and working on this episode and these various stories. Tally, I'm, I'm so super proud of you and also really excited to work with you. And to you, the listener, I can't wait until you get to meet Tally on the microphone. That's coming up real soon. We have a bunch of cool stories planned, as well as some behind the scenes stuff that I think you're going to like. Now, next time on Unthinkable, we're exploring the story of a guy who has created what I think is among the smallest instances of creativity on the internet, but he's going to teach us some massive lessons about this overall journey we're on all year. And just to refresh your memory, we're on this journey to understand how to combat shortcut culture and instead create consistently great work. My hypothesis is that we have to master the art of reinvention. Consistency isn't about just plucking out some answer in theory and then putting it on repeat, nor is it about glomming on to any one shortcut or trend that can spike our numbers in the short term. No, to think long term, to create consistently resonant work, consistently great work, we have to constantly reinvent ourselves. And that's a process of continual discovery designed to deliver ever more refreshing things. So how does that work? Next week, we're going to learn some valuable lessons with an incredible story of one of my favorite projects on the internet. For now, remember, there's a ton of conventional thinking out there, but finding best practices is not the goal. Finding the best approach for you is. So forget that conventional wisdom. Trust your intuition. Bye-bye.